Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story, then you can become an 8mm Cine fan where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to Cinelit. Today we are heading back to the 1950s to take a look at a brace of films that established a director on the path to glory. We are, of course, talking about Stanley Kubrick, who left behind some of the most revered films in cinema history. But those films are a topic for another day. Today we are looking at two films at the start of his career, Killer's Kiss, 1955, and The Killing, 1956, two films that convinced Hollywood that this Kubrick guy was worth investing in. My name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to this. Cool. And joining us today to discuss these works is the host of Quad's Midweek Treat, film lecturer David Lester. How are you, David? Hi, Adam. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. Cool. So this is right on my street, guys. Neo, 1950s crime films. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sign me up, no problem. Um, I'm less of a Kubrick acolyte, but I, uh, I appreciate his quality. And uh, I'm fascinated by these two movies, more so than maybe some of his other movies. But, uh, uh, yeah, so what, what we, 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 should we just start in order? Killer's Kiss, mm-hmm. 1955. A nice and pacey one-hour and seven minutes, 67 minutes. So, you know, a, a vast change from the latter days of Kubrick's career when his films were regularly over two hours. Um, here he's doing one in, in just over an hour and telling a story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if, if, he's, if he did in later life review his films and, and reveal how, um, it, how he reacted to them then. I think he would have been a bit, a bit embarrassed by Killer's Kiss, for instance. I think there are some conventions there that he certainly would have jettisoned. The initial voiceover, the internal monologue from the central character, I, I, you know, is something he, I don't think he would have. He would have done. I mean, we we have the commentary in Barry Lyndon, for mm-hmm. instance, the voiceover, this uh, disembodied uh, commentator. But the the, the the content of what he's saying is interesting. Mm-hmm. In uh, in Killer's Kiss, it's just a kind of setting. Yeah. So I mean, this, this, we probably should tell the story of Killer's Kiss. It's about a uh, an aging out boxer, um, probably on the downturn of his career, who uh, starts a relationship with his neighbour. And and gets involved in a violent um, threesome, I guess, between mm-hmm. him, his neighbour, and her boyfriend, employer, 
um, heavy, <laughs> yeah, mob boss type character. Um, so it's fairly relatively by the numbers crime film of 1955 in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But there, but there are still already, I think, certain signals that that he's he's not doing things in the expected way. The way in which we discover the woman, mm-hmm. so, just a, a blur in in the background in a, in an established shot where the boxer is in the his own apartment, and we, I mean, I, I wonder whether Louis Mal, who did Atlantic City, mm-hmm. had ideas. Uh, from that film when he was making that Atlantic City. I do think there are certain similarities. Mm, well, the French New Wave were very influenced by these kind of crime movies, weren't they? They, they, yeah. they, they saw them as having a purity that um, conventional Hollywood films at the time didn't have. You know, things that they couldn't control slipped through the net and showed mm. bad, bad cinema more, more truthfully, I guess. Yeah. yeah. The shot you've mentioned there, David seems to be, or could be argued to be, a riff on Hitchcock's rear window from the previous right, year. Right, and, and the film sort of looks as though it's going to develop in that direction for a while, but then doesn't, mm. um, and goes off somewhere else. I think also audiences of that time would have, going in and, and realising that, oh, it's, it's a boxing flick, it's a boxing yeah. movie... Yeah would have then thought back to recent films like uh, Body and Soul or The Setup, And, and the, 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 the standard with boxing films of the late 40s was that they, they were often, like those two classic films I've just mentioned, were often about throwing the fight and gangsters yeah. being involved yeah. in manipulating the, the results of fights. And again, you may well have expected that from this movie. Yeah. Um, so you've got those two... That, that sort of twin prong there of, oh, it's going to be about a boxer who's asked to throw the fight by gangsters and it's going to be like that Alfred Hitchcock film we saw six months ago. And then it doesn't go yeah, in either of those. It's things. intriguing to speculate as to whether Kubrick intended that, to wrong-foot the audience and say you're going to get a boxing movie with the, with the usual themes. Yeah, we, we know that he was into boxing yes. because he, he made um, uh, Day of the Fight, fight uh, yes. in 1950. Yeah. And he was obviously interested in that culture. Um, and I think his interests are reflected in this film as well. Yeah, well, um, we need to talk about his uh, background in photography, yes. I think, really, yes. um, before we go into these two films, because um, we, we know Kubrick as a filmmaker, but you, you, you were suggesting earlier on when we were speaking that there might have been a point in his life when, when film didn't really matter all that much to him. I, I'm not aware that he mentions um, being intrigued in any way or involved in any way, any way uh, in film culture when he was young. I mean, he was, he was fairly... I mean, he was 23 when he made Killer's Kiss, so he's yeah. fairly young. Yeah, yeah. You know, particularly young for Hollywood standards. You yeah. didn't get many yeah. 23, 24-year-old I mean, obviously, it became his ambition. We know mm. that his background was in photography. Mm. And he, I think he was about 16 or something when he was employed mm-hmm. as, a, as a, a photographer. And he was earning more than his, his parents yeah, yeah. at that young age. And clearly, I mean, when you look at the photographs as well, you can see how increasingly they get composed. And also the, the subject matters within those, within those and it's leading into his filmmaking yeah. because well, that's, that's the question we need to consider having started on photography at such an early age and become so successful at it was there always the ambition to get into filmmaking mm. or would he have been content to become the world's greatest um, street photographer mm. um, 
his, his photos, if you look at a lot of his sort of early photographic work, it's very much in that sort of noir type sort of element that, that he brings to these yes. early films. Yeah. Well, there's a grittiness to it as well. Like you say, he's a street photographer. He was, def- he was definitely a street um, element to his early work, particularly. Yeah, yeah. And then that transfers... And that, that's kind of of the time as well. I mean, you think, you think like, in, in these, both, these are both crime films, the two films we're talking about today, and there was a big boom in publishing in the 40s, particularly. And by the time the 50s rolled around... The sort of like the the, the the crime publishing boom, which is going in the forties, had kind of worked itself to a point where they were getting more and more outrageous, more and more violent, more and more lurid and sexy, and to the point where you get to the, these characters in this film. I can't imagine a lot of these characters being in a film noir of nineteen forty eight. Mm. No, they're they're no. grittier, they're harder, they're, they're more they're real. very influenced yeah. by that sort of pulp novel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think he was taking from that. Yeah. And of course, yeah. Kubrick, I'm sure, would have, would have been um, going to see films like Body and Soul and like all the classic noir from an early age because um, I know we're, we're going to talk about uh, The Killing later on. I know that Kubrick cast The Killing largely simply by picking actors that he'd liked in other film noir, which is why you get Mary Windsor and Elisha Cook Jr. Mm, and people yes, like that. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, we'll come on to that later. Yeah. But I mention it now because that suggests that he was actually, while he was out on the streets taking his photographs, when he'd got a spare couple of hours or a spare afternoon, he was probably going to the cinema to see a, a film noir double bill. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there was clearly... I, I would guess that there was an interest in cinema as as a viewer rather than a participant um, from an early age. I get the feeling with Killer's Kiss that it's a, it's a film that discovers itself increasingly. Uh, we mentioned the fact that it's, it sets itself up as a boxing movie and goes somewhere else. But clearly he just loved filming on the streets. Oh, yeah. And you're thinking of things like Jacques Turner's um, Naked City. Yeah. Again, a, a film that... Uh, that stood out largely because it was filming on the streets yeah. rather than creating sets. And again, how, how much of this came out of the fact that filmmakers might have been looking overseas and looking at things like uh, Italian neorealism yeah. and the fact that people suddenly... You, you didn't need to um, film in a studio. You didn't necessarily even need Hollywood connections. You, you could make a film... And, and for New York filmmakers, for someone based... Uh, on on the other side of America, like Kubrick was, you know, here was the opportunity to go out and make a film without the usual constraints. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it really works well. I mean, I think, you know, it, that, 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 uh, that final sequence, the chase sequence mm. through the city, is extraordinarily adventurous. I mean, you're getting overhead shots, you're getting tracking shots, you're getting distant shots... Um, and, but the editing works very well. It, it maintains that, that kind of edginess yeah, yeah. and I mean, uh, the even, tension. Even early in the film, um, there's, um, we, we, we do... Um, while, while the film is still a boxing film and set within that, that sort of milieu, we, we, we get to see a fight scene. Yeah. And it, it, it's shot rather differently to the fight scenes that we'd probably seen from Hollywood movies at that time. Um, it's not quite Raging Bull, but it's sort of a no. step in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Kubrick 
creating and inventing a new way of filming um, that, that type of conflict. Well, I was going to say that he's using the camera really as a, as a witness, I feel, in, that, in, yeah. the, in those fight sequences. Yeah. It's not being edited to, in order to create an artificial energy. No. Uh, well, or... as, as, we, as we say, he'd already made a documentary on boxing the day yeah. of the fight. Yeah. And this is almost... It's it, it's stylized. It's not documentary like this. It's 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 very fictional movie, but it's got a ringside quality to mm. it. The camera is very very close. We can see the ropes as as we do in in Raging Bull, very very mm. close up and prominent in 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 the frame, and then suddenly we're we're in the ring as well. We're mm. we're sort of being punched, yeah. you know, or we're yeah. giving punches. I, I I think he's he's bringing a new language to um, to mm. to the sports movie there. Um, I mean, the documentary style does obviously does feed into that. Obviously, yeah. feeds in a lot more yeah. in the killing. Yeah. I think the killing is much more has its roots in that in, in his experiences in documentary. But it, it's in this as well. Even the voiceover, we, 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 I think the voiceover is a hangover from the documentary bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. even he, though he then carries that over into the killing mm-hmm. as well. There's yeah. still voiceover in in the killing. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, yeah. it's yes. it, you you know your suggestion earlier that it might be something that he might look back on and 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 uh, and have dismissed. I'm not so sure because he. I, I think if he if he was going to dismiss that type of thinking, he'd have he'd have done so by the time he was working on the killing. I think I think he'd have seen the killing as a, a, a more serious film than the two that he'd done up to that point: uh, Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire. Yeah. And um, the fact that he's kept voice over in there, and the fact that he's still in the world of noir, and the fact that we're pairing these two films today. Um, suggest to me that the, the use of voiceover was, was, was intentional, it was a choice, it wasn't something that was sort of foisted on him. And I'm, I'm not so sure that he would have necessarily given the chance, gone back and re-edited these films or gone back and dismissed them or disowned them. I still I, feel I, that the voiceover in Killer's Kiss is more a convention, whereas in, in The Killing um, it becomes a presence. Yeah, um, you know, it's same stuff. Also, because the, 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 they had Jim Thompson writing the dialogue, yes, yeah. and the, the, it's it's a it's a real step up. In, well, yeah. in, in that sense, do we see Killer's Kiss as, as being a, a sort of step on the ladder to the killing? Mm. You know, would would the killing not have existed without? Killer's case as a sort of trial run, you know. Well, that's that's true, but I still think that I mean, I think we'd probably all agree that the Killer's Kiss stands on its own oh, yeah. as something very, which is worth much, attention. Mm. Yeah, I think I think also some of the things that you that I think Kubrick pulled from Killer's Kiss were not necessarily realised in the killing, mm. but were realised in later films. Oh, yeah. particularly the sequence in the in, again towards the end with the mannequins mm. is like it's really stylised and yeah. really. And you think, and I'm sitting there thinking. This is like this clockwork orange in here. There's, you can see the roots of a lot of his more uh, The Shining and things like that. You can see those some of those odd scenes. Yeah, the, the, com- the combat itself. I mean, this this is set in a, a modern warehouse in New York with mannequins, you know, made out of plastic. The very symbol of, of modern America at that time, you know, um, and 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 so the characters have to fight using whatever is in the warehouse, yeah. whatever they can actually find, and they manage to find weapons <laughs> that are of the time, they're of the period, and they're of the place, but they look like weapons 
that you might have seen in Spartacus a few years later. <laughs> yeah. Or, or a, a, a medieval setting. You know, they are almost gladiatorial or something that you might have seen on, on a, a, a battlefield with knights fighting each other. You know, it's, it's, it's got that very sort of period quality to it. It's a classic conflict. And with, with, with this whole sort of weirdness of, of these sort of disembodied heads and hands hanging down and things, I suppose even an opportunity to get copious nudity on screen mm-hmm. in 1953 in the shape of, of these, these plastic torsos. I think it's the wrong kind of plastic, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> it. Hopefully getting on to uh, but, the uh, graduate yeah, here. You're, you're absolutely right, though. What, what a scene, you know, as a, as a climax to yeah. this hour of, of yes. entertainment. I mean, there's no reason for the mannequins to be there, you know, no, uh, no. except that you can, you, you, can, you, you can exploit it cinematically. Yeah. yeah. And he does it very effectively. And I think also it's one of those things where there's no reason for Stan Kubrick in his second feature to have mannequins mm. but we wouldn't even be questioning it if it was Stanley yeah. Kubrick in 84 yeah. doing that scene he'd yeah. be like well of yeah. course yeah. it's a stylish finish well, you, you, know? you, you, you see you see mannequins used in, in A Clockwork Orange yeah. and, and you think yeah. what great set design yeah. what imaginative yeah. set design yeah. mm-hmm. and, and this is where that stems from but I think he's already at that point in the film he's earned his right to go to do this artificial thing Mm-hmm. Of, of having mm-hmm. these mannequins and having yeah. this fight. Well, in, because in, it, his, in, it, his own, in his own mind, I think he comes into this film, maybe not so much in Fear and Desire, his previous film, mm. which he did disown, but I think he comes into Killer's Kiss. In his own mind, he thinks, the, the, all the years that I've been on the streets taking wonderful photographs... I've paid my dues. Mm. I've earned this. Mm. I've earned the right to be a little bit artistic and flamboyant. Yeah. And he okay. goes for it. When we talk, we talk about Kubrick as, a, as the man who liked to subvert genres. You know, we think about, like, The Shining and things like that. And 2001, Space Odyssey, you know, you, you get the subversion of genre. Is he doing it here? Is, is this the kind of thing where, right at the very start... He's saying, well, most crime films would be fairly straightforward, particularly ones that are 67 minutes and meant as B features. They wouldn't have these weird imagery in a, in a, in a crime movie. So I'm adding that to the mix to separate myself There's from yeah, the I genre. Think there's wrong. one scene in the film that answers that question, Adam. The scene where the female lead is, is um, telling a story about the suicide of her sister, mm-hmm. who's a ballerina, and... We don't see her telling the story. We don't see a depiction of the events. We don't see a flashback. We see a ballerina on stage dancing for five minutes. Yeah. 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 Now, that's, that's clearly an artistic choice and a yes. vision, and it's something that you wouldn't have seen in the Maltese Falcon. Mm. The, the, the ballerina being Kubrick's wife as well. Yes. Yeah. Right. As well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, not saying he did that just to get her in the movie for five minutes, but <laughs> they are. So, yeah, I think that sense of artifice and that sense of being able to play with what cinema is... And that's something you couldn't have done, crucially, in a photograph either, because if you did that as a photograph, people would look at that photo and they would say, it's a photo of a ballerina on stage. And in this film, you're looking at a ballerina on stage, but you're seeing something and experiencing something very different. I think one, I would argue, one way in which this stands out against other film noirs is that from the beginning, you don't have characters with power you know, you don't have the, 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 the arch enemy that you're fighting. You don't have the gang boss. We have a villain who emerges, but he's a bit low-key, isn't mm-hmm. he? He's, you know, a bit low-status. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, in some I, ways, I mean, in some ways, it's like a, it, it is like a prototype Jim Thompson. Then yeah. Jim Thompson yeah. has that sort of like the the flaw. The, the big villain is the flaws inside his own characters. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I think that's a similar is a similar vibe here. Going but I th- but you can more easily engage with someone who doesn't who's not so far above you and out of reach, because he's a very sensitive actor. Mm. He's he's playing this role in a very uh, um, um, sensitive way. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not the the bullish um, figure that we would expect a boxer no. to be. We recognise as the film goes on that he's a he's he, you know he's on the slide, that his you know his his career as a boxer is virtually over, and he's just collecting the money and and getting the punches. Yeah, but, uh, but, he, but he's, he's a likable character, yeah, and he's clearly an intelligent guy as well. He's, yes. he, he's not just a big lunk, a big sort of palooka, you know, mm. who, who's who's taken too many punches. Yeah, he's he's a guy who he may be coming to the end of his boxing career, but he's clearly got one eye on well, what, what what's my future? You know, yeah. what what next? Rather than a character who just sort of descends into a depression yeah. and dwells in this world where and you get my, my the, life's over, you know, you, know, you, you, like you recognise as well. It's established that there are family ties and family affection. Yeah, there is yeah. the uncle that uh, obviously he's very fond of. You know, mm. he's getting phone calls. It's not a, it's not a burden to have to to talk to a member of his family. There have been one or two reviews of the film. Um, I, I don't think it got too many reviews when it came out, mm. so a lot of the coverage of it has been later on. And some reviews have, have, have sort of said they, they find the film a little bit too arty and a little bit too sort of mannered at times. I, I disagree because I think it's so short that Kubrick can get away with um, uh, with, with little motifs and, and little concerns like that. I, I, I love, for instance, and this may be a little nod to his own photographic background, we, we see the shot of the, the, the boxer's mirror, and it's got to... You, you, you don't get a glimpse... You only get a briefest, blurry glimpse of them, but you see there are photographs all around the edge of the mirror. Mm. And then Kubrick does this great montage where he shows you each photograph yeah. in close-up, one after the other, yes. but not long enough for you to sort of register what's in the photos and make anything of it. I'm sure if... if if you watch the film on Blu-ray or whatever these days, you know, and, and stop and freeze frame it, you can probably tell, tell a whole story out of that. They're saying that great, very sort of mannered shot of the, the close-up in, in the goldfish bowl, which again comes very, very early on, but seems to be a sort of statement of intent, almost as... He's, he's, see, he's seen the neighbour by this point. He's seen the girl yeah. across the way, the sort of rear window shot. And, um, and so we've got his face grotesquely distorted in in the curve of the goldfish bowl and two goldfish swimming around in 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 the foreground um again i i guess representative of of him and her i i don't know if you want to take that from it i i kind of well i i got a sense that it was saying that we have a sensitive person here yeah you know you wouldn't expect a boxer to be keeping goldfish yeah, yeah. and also when he leaves the apartment he leaves the instruction please feed the goldfish <laughs> So he doesn't forget about them. Yeah. So as well as as well as potentially being symbolic, it's it's the, it's there for character reasons mm. as well. It's, it's mm. there as a natural sort of thing. It's there as a realistic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, also, he's brought into the plot though to look after the to the to his neighbour. He's like, should I get involved? It's like a mm. moment where should I get involved? Yeah. And I think yeah. the, the goldfish are there was like, well, of course I'm going. I've got my own goldfish. Of course I'm going to yeah. get involved and help people here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I had the <laughs> feeling there, at the beginning sort of catalyst as well. Yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah. That the, the the set was a bit overpopulated, mm. but as Darren said, um, he actually 
uses those items. We explore those pictures. Yeah. We do see... We, 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 we are not standing outside the apartment. We, are in, we do get inside it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning as well the female character because uh, she's not just there in order to in order to advance the plot of the of the the boxer. Mm. She's there in her own right, and I think it's an interesting choice uh, that Kubrick has made here uh, of setting. In many ways, she doesn't have a future in this setting as much as the boxer no longer has a future. The boxer has had some kind of status, some kind of success. Um, she's there as, well, in some ways, as a kind of mannequin mm. uh, in this kind of strange culture where men pay to have dances with attractive young women. And, of course, there's the opportunity there that they might, it might develop into something else. But I think that that is nicely shot, the way in which we are, we are in, the, in the dance hall itself and we're seeing these couples. And, they all, and in many ways, they do still feel quite disembodied as a kind of... Uh, portent of what we're going to see with the mannequins in many ways she is much she has as much status as a mannequin mm. i don't think kubrick necessarily thought as deliberately as that i hope not because it's a bit pretentious to be honest uh, but um, but I, I i find that very effective mm. and he's invested in that as much as he is invested in the story of the boxer and the world in which I, he lives. i think so yeah and, I, I, yeah sorry. i think i think the casting for her is great mm. because mm. yeah in, in a lot of these crime film noir films around this period you're getting people like Lana Turner or, yeah. or Barbara Stanwyck in yeah. these movies, and 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 they are completely unbelievable as real, yeah. real yes. characters. Yeah. They are visions on screen, yes. sort of thing. And uh, Irene Kane are, are, um, is not that. She's a very beautiful woman, but she's yeah. not that unattainable, unrealistic. She's not glamorous. Yeah. There is something no, I, about I, the I hair which is a little bit kind of dowdy. Um, you know, there's something about the makeup which is not quite secure there. I mean, makeup creates a, a face, um, and often it's an artificial one. Yeah. You know, the heavy use of, of, um, of lipstick, for instance, often creates a, 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 a being which has no personality. Yeah. She clearly has personality, but the personality is emerging from the bits of grit that are underneath. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That extends to the casting of uh, Mary Windsor in The Killing, I think, as well, who, again, isn't, isn't a sort mm. of uh, mm. um, a, a conventional screen beauty and a conventional yeah. noir heroine. She'd been in film noir previously, but was, was not a glamour queen. She wasn't Alana Turner. And um, at, at a point where you sense Kubrick and the studio may well have been able to afford somebody with a bit more prestige to, to play that part. I think to come back to the dance hall, David, it's such a sad and, and lonely place, yeah. and a shady place. Yeah. It's clearly like, like a lot of what a lot of the settings of the killing, of, of uh, Killer's Kiss, rather. Um, they're clearly all places that are run by gangsters or the mob or some kind of shady business. We never really get into that. You know, that's, that's no. always left lurking yeah. in the background. We're, we're not seeing the sort of upper strata of all this. We're not seeing where the money's counted and, and where the decisions are made. We're seeing the very lowest tier, the very yes, bottom yes, right. And I think the dance hall is about as low as it gets, yeah. you know. Um, the, um, the big band music that plays um, as the dancers go on is, um, uh, again, very, very reminiscent of what, what came later in, in the Overlook Hotel in the ballroom scenes in, in The Shining. Yes, yes. And, uh, specifically, I think, with, with the sort of echoey quality of the music and the fact that... Um, uh, 
you get that same sort of echo playing in in an empty room or, or what we see as an empty room in in the hotel in the shining 25 years later um yeah so uh, um I think I think another echo of the future um, comes into play in the scene where the boxer's manager is beaten to a pulp in the alleyway. And I don't think we ever find out his fate, do we? No. Uh, that whether no. he whether he's just badly beaten or or actually murdered. But um, uh, isn't that scene set up and lit and the, the use of shadows and everything almost identical to? Uh, the scene with the, the the homeless guy under the under the subway in uh, Clockwork Orange. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, you 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 can see the um, the sort of development of, of 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 that famous iconic scene in the later film, right here in in Killer's Kiss. Mm. Um, and again, I suppose the use of shadow on elongated shadow on walls and so on. You could argue that's a bit of a, no, a noir trope already by then. You know, I think the setup had used very similar sort of scenes. It had a it had a scene very very much like that with the Robert Ryan being beaten up in a in a similar sort of uh, location. Um, in fact, with with a with a, a cut away to the wall. Um, uh, Robert Wise actually focuses on a wall at one point as the the key moment of violence is taking place, which is a shot that Tarantino then imitated for the famous ear scene in uh, in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, Kubrick in in one sense there he's sort of copying a, a, a standard idea from noir that you you film with elongated shadows and you film against stark brick walls and so on mm. and you film from overhead mm. but then 16 years later in a clockwork orange he's 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 still applying those tricks yes but he's he's inside the action more yeah by the time we get to clockwork orange he is he is yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but but then you know if you're talking about being inside the action, he's already shown in the boxing scene here that he can do yeah. that. And the dance all I would say. Yeah, indeed, mm. indeed. Yeah. I think it's quite, it's quite an interesting one to see how much he is forging anew and how much is he pulling from somewhere else. Mm. I mean, like you talk about Tarantino, we were like, Tarantino created this, or maybe the 80s prior to Tarantino as well, created this world of referencing other filmmakers. Whereas I don't think that necessarily was a thing in the 1950s. It was more like bringing your experiences from other art forms to film. So like in, in Kubrick's case, photography. Yeah. Um, and, and also just like the, just him drawing from like what was popular at the time. He was trying to make a movie that would be sold and be in yeah. cinemas and make yeah. money. You know, yeah. So he could move, move on in his career. And he picked film noir, arguably one of the pop- most popular genres. But also he picked um, a big publishing boom at the time was sleaze novels where it was like stories of fallen women women in brothels women in 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 dire financial needs doing things that they wouldn't normally do or wouldn't have to do and he's 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 channeling some of that in some of those dance hall scenes definitely particularly the world yeah and that's there as well and that's that would have been a commercial um particularly in publishing at the time um avenue they thought okay i can exploit some of that and still make the film i want to make Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in a question here as, as we, we're sort of in between talking about uh, Killer's Kiss and the killing. I think it's a good a good moment to ask this question and maybe to answer it myself or attempt to. Um, where Where is Kubrick at at this point? And at what point in his career does he become, in quotes, Stanley Kubrick? Um, 
is, is he fully formed? I don't think he is at the point of fear and desire, but is he, is he fully formed already by the time he's making Killer's Kiss? Or is, is he still a work in progress? Is he still in development? Because we've talked about scenes in this movie that have then carried over to the, 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 the later years of his career. Where, where do you think he thought he was at this point? Was there a game plan, or, or did that come later? Yes, I, that's, that's hard to, to answer. I still think this is, a, that this is Kubrick in, 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 uh, in progress. I, I, think, think, I think, he think he thinks that. Right. Yeah. Do, do yeah. these two films stand alone, then? They're, they're the two noir yes. that he did, and he never returned to them. No, that, I think that's, that's, that's a so, clear thing that he feels like he's... I think he's trying to make films that will get him to the point where he can make the films he wants to make. And then it all kicks off properly with Pass, Pass of Glory. Glory yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. once he's done that, he never comes back to the crime genre, yeah. with the exception of Clockwork Orange, I guess. Well, he, yeah. he, he, even then, being, that's not really... Yeah, his path and he, and is he, being directed he, at that yeah. point, isn't he? You know, yeah. through Kirk Douglas, largely. Yeah. And yeah. obviously he was so instrumental yeah. in getting him in on Spartacus, yeah. which yeah. is not... which wasn't Kubrick's film to begin no, no, with. No. And he never returns to anything after that. Each, each of his films are, are different from one another. Mm. So, mm. so um, this, the, this is the only brace that you can sort of talk about in tandem, really, isn't it? Mm. You know... And, and so is this a different filmmaker to Stanley Kubrick, the man, the man mm. that we, we, we know and some of us revere? Well, so. the American film industry was going through a state of flux at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, the old certainties are no longer there. The stranglehold that the studios had over filmmaking, film distribution, um, the careers of actors and so on had gone. You know, the, 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 it's, it's extraordinary now to think that uh, in the 30s, for instance, they owned everything. They owned the, the cinemas. They owned you know, not just the, the studios, but where the films were shown. Mm-hmm. And films were sent out as packages. So you'd have your Wizard of Oz, but you'd have some crummy little film that you had to buy as part of the package. All that had gone. And also, the studios were not having the power that they used to have. It's becoming the era of the stars. Mm-hmm. And as they're becoming more important and getting more power, they are making the films that they want to make. Mm-hmm. Kirk Douglas is a case, a case in point. Burt Lancaster had a production company. Even, I believe, Cary Grant had a production company. Mm-hmm. So th- um, th- th- they, are, they are the focal point of films yeah, the, now, the, the stars. The is changing yeah. and power yeah. shifting. Yeah, and, and you can see that yeah, reflected yeah. in Kubrick's films yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. And as also, is that you've got, the, you got the birth of the auteur theory coming yeah. through as well here yeah. in the 50s and then definitely in the 60s, where the importance of those directors becomes... I mean, you always had your big-name directors... But now everyone was an auteur, you know what I mean? Yeah, everyone yeah, had yeah. any sort of running theme through any of their work, they were an auteur. Yeah, and, and suddenly, you know, directors and influential producers are sort of calling the shots a little more and the, the studio aren't necessarily telling them what to do mm. and mm. which day to be on set and which film they're making. You know, they, they decide suddenly. Um, Another thing, while, while we're sort of in between films, another question that I want to put, and I'll, I'll sort of ask this about Killer's Kiss, and then we can maybe ask it about the killing later on. We know what Lolita is, we know what Spartacus is, we know what The Shining is in terms of what those films are about. What does the title Killer's Kiss mean? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was, I, was, I, was, I was wondering about that. Is it a boxer's it's... punch? Who's, who's the killer? I think you can you can read you can see more than one meaning in it, can't you? I mean, it seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? You don't expect the killer to to kiss. You know, one is a sign of aggression, the other one is a sign of tenderness. So you have a kind of conflict there. 
I'm, I mean, I'm not sure it was intended. Yeah. It probably I th- I wasn't. Think the, the only literal meaning I can see in the film is the, the, the attack on the girl by the guy in mm. her apartment uh, that's, that's witnessed in the sort mm. of rear window style. Mm. So the, the, the kiss isn't a sort of requited and desired one, is it? You know? no. and, but then that guy isn't, isn't a killer. In, in the, he, he does, you know, he, he, he yeah. may pay other people yeah. to kill, but yeah. uh, um, he doesn't actually commit a, a, a killing himself. So, so you know, that, that leaves the question open. What... what what is meant by the title "Killer's Kiss"? Mm. And as you say, I, I think there there are several potential sort of um, meanings. The to cynic that. in me says says when Kubrick, because Kubrick wrote this one as well, didn't he? Yeah. Um, the cynic in me says that I need a sna- snappy title. Is it yeah. just that's a great pulp And a killer's kiss is yeah. a great pulp yeah. title. It is. It is. Um, and then he wrote the scripts, and it was like, I don't matter. Yeah, you know, the, the title's fine. It'll sell. There's multiple reasons why it can work. Then yeah. we moved on. Well, you've got the alliteration there, which you know, it, yeah, yeah. it, it just sounds good, doesn't it? Mm. And yeah. you've got the, you, the letter K again for Kubrick yeah, in yeah, the killing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Shall I'm, 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 I'm going to be daring here and lead on to the discussion of the killing by asking the same question about that film's title: What is the killing in the killing? Because again, I, I, think I think it's I often think used in crime, isn't it? To, when, a, when, you know, when a big job has been com- yeah, pull, pull, successfully pulling off completed, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've made a killing. killing. Yeah, yeah. And that's certainly the case here. And it works really. better than Killer's yeah. Kiss because it's shorter, direct, punchy. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it wasn't the name of the book. The book that it's based on was called Clean Break by oh, Lionel right, okay. White. So yeah, well, you can understand why I wouldn't so want to call it film. Clean, yeah, yeah. Clean Break, yeah. yeah it's not now, it. now, is it a decision of Stanley Kubrick or is it a decision of Jim Thompson who claims to have... have he's credited, I think, with writing dialogue. The dialogue, it, yes. But he, he claimed to the end of his life that he'd, he'd written the whole thing. So What, the screenplay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, OK. So I think Stanley Kubrick gets a credit for the screenplay. Yes, he does, yeah. But the dialogue is treated separately. Yeah, Mm. yeah. But Jim Thompson claimed to have had much more of a a say in this. But uh, um, I I guess when you look at it, it's like, well, if if it's based on a book by a very respected crime writer, Lionel White, very big big name in crime, pulp crime fiction of that period, and Kubrick's design the way it looks... Is dialogue not enough of a credit for him? (laughs) What what else did you bring to the situation? Well, the dialogue is so distinctive in the killing. You'd be proud of it. Yeah, yeah, I'd be proud if I wrote that. Every everyone's got an ego, you know. You can you can never you you never get enough credit, do you? So uh, yeah. We've got we've got the the robbery. They could be said, oh, we're we're, we're making a killing. We've got the shooting of a horse as the, mm. as the central mm. murder in the film, mm. which is very very unusual. Yeah. You don't get horse assassination in many movies. No, you uh, don't. no, no. We've we've got a mass shootout at one point. We've got Elisha Cook and Mary Windsor's relationship that that's yeah. dying a death. You yeah. know, ultimately the scheme fails. It that that that's a failure. So so again, there's multiple myriad interpretations to this title mm-hmm. and I think that's great in both films and it's not something Kubrick necessarily continued as I say A Clockwork Orange may be one that's on, up for debate but then again that's not Kubrick's title mm-hmm. and I think it's made pretty clear what A Clockwork Orange is but mm-hmm. you know a lot of people don't quite understand it and do debate that but again it's Anthony Burgess's title anyway yeah, yeah. Um, I think here we've got titles that are the, the most 
debatable and interesting and rich in Kubrick's filmography. Fear and Desire, which came before, mm. it, again, is is fairly sort of basic. I, I think yeah. that, that sort of describes what it is. You've got triggers. You've got words as triggers there, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. Fear, yeah. desire. Yeah. But here, but here, tell here, you about the film. here you've got very conventional, as Adam says, very, very punchy noir titles, great Pulp Fiction titles, but I, th- I think they're, they're, so, they're so rich and detailed mm. as well. Mm. No, maybe, maybe titles just weren't his thing. And, 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 this, cause it, and, and he was driven by other concerns to create these ones. Because yeah. he, as he went along, he was like Lolita, Clockwork Orange, other titles, yeah. Barry Lyndon. They were Lyndon, given to him, yeah. yeah. They were yeah. given to him. So like, and The Shine, yeah, all through, all through really. Exactly. So Eyes not, Wide Shut maybe is a, is a standout. Standout. It's, even it's a contradiction. Yeah, it's not particularly clever No, it's not. Title, really, it's too really. self-conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like these, he's 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 being forced into. Oh, well, I need to. It's, I'm I'm making a crime film. It's got to be a punchy crime yeah. style title yeah. that's going to get bums yeah. on seats. Yeah. Yeah. So it, is it almost accidental that they then have the, the this range of meanings? Then I don't think Stanley Kubrick wants you spending too much time no, thinking I don't think about so the title. Either. Certainly not at that. Rather point. than at the expense of the movie, I think that's I think that's ultimately what it is. We'll, we'll shut up about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I want to move on to uh, the opening titles of The Killing, mm. which again we, we said about the, the the gladiatorial sort of. Uh, Aspects of the, the the mannequin fight scene at the end of uh, Killer's Kiss. Here we've got blaring fanfare music o- over the credits, and we've got shots of parading horses with mm. some plumes and reins, ornate reins and things on. That's that's a shot from Spartacus, mm-hmm. four years early. You know, it's it's it, we it's revealed that we're watching a racetrack. You know, we're we're watching the horses yeah. pulling. The, um, the 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 gate at the start of the the, the next race yeah. race seven all importantly there's a sense of ceremony and pageantry there right from the off and it's over the opening yeah. title but all, but we don't know what kind of film we're going to get there not at all at the beginning not of the killer's all. kiss it's established right yeah. away yeah. we know where the world we're in so this is Kubrick making progress all yes I think so yeah. yeah yeah and maybe relaxing a bit more yeah. but, but but certainly expanding his vision. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd also argue to sort of jump ahead and jump around this film a little. There's the great, uh, the great distraction fight scene in the racetrack bar later on, where they've hired this hulking mm. wrestler to mm. come in, mm. and his shirt gets ripped off in the middle of the fight, and the punters in the bar all sort of clear the place and all stand around the edges creating this sort of arena-type space, and then six coppers rush in, and the wrestler's got them hanging off his body and hanging off his arms... And again, it's 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 like it's like a scene from Spartacus. Mm. It's it, it almost preempts what Kubrick was yes. going to go on to. So do. you could imagine Kirk Douglas watching that, yeah, and thinking, "I must remember this. This, this who's this guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd be perfect." Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. the, the structure of the film is quite interesting and influential and clever mm. <laughs> in the way yes. that he replays yes. the same scenes from different points of view yes. as it goes yeah. along. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, Tarantino alone, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, well, Tar- Tarantino, we've mentioned Reservoir Dogs already um, in, in connection with the, the setup, the Robert Wise film, and, and I think that was an influence on both Tarantino and on... Um, and on uh, Kubrick's Killer's Kiss. But, uh, yeah, Tarantino has said that The Killing was perhaps the main influence on his his debut movie. Mm. And I think it shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's, it's 
a really clever heist movie. It is. The the elaborate plot as well. Uh, it, it's, it's very intriguing. Okay, you know in, the diversions in, in, in order to, to, to distract from the crime that is really happening. Yeah. In eighty-four minutes or something. Yeah. Again, we're, we're not talking yeah. an epic here. Yeah. We're talking about something that Kubrick made films twice that length or more yeah. later in his career. These two are both really, really punchy. Mm. You can watch them both back to back in an yeah. afternoon. Yeah. So Kubrick, Kubrick makes this film in nineteen fifty-six. Um, a year after arguably one of the greatest heist movies of all time, Rafifi is released. Mm. Uh, had Kubrick seen it? Was he influenced by this? Or was he just like working in isolation? I can, you can only speculate. Because they've both got very smart takes yes, they on have. Yeah, crime. Yeah, that's long heist wordless uh, scene where yeah. they're, they're doing the actual mm. robbery. Yeah. I, I think Kubrick has probably seen the asphalt jungle, he's probably seen the big combo, he's probably yeah. he's, he's seen every noir that's yeah. out Odds there, against Adam. tomorrow. He's seen Rafifi for sure. Whether whether that's more of an influence on this than any other thing that he's seen, I'm not sure. As as we said earlier on, he, he cast he cast the killing simply based on Actors that I like in film noir that I like, mm. um, and um, so yeah, I, I don't know that there's any one particular film well, that in, stands out. In some ways, I wasn't really thinking about whether whether it was a direct influence or whether it was more of an impetus to be smarter, to be cleverer in the way that they construct their heist Poss- movie. Mm. Because he could have just whacked out another. Uh, not like d- 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 diminished killers, Chris, but he could have whacked out another film, crime film, yeah, like that, film. Yeah. Yeah. film, and and directed the hell out of it, and it looks fantastic. And okay, well done, we'll move you up. Yeah. But he, there seems to be a, a real desire to do something yeah. different with it, to do something interesting, to do something. It's tempting with the Killer's Kiss to feel that he, he were two people that he knew. And he managed to get make a film of them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, with the, um, with the killing, you have at least two established stars there. Mm. Yeah. All right, maybe not that they wouldn't carry a film in their own right, but they're recognisable faces they're, they're, and they're good supporting yeah, yeah. actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as as I say, Kubrick had cast from his love of film noir, and so these the, the, all most of the cast are people that would be recognisable to to mm. the audience mm. going to see the film. Yeah, um, yeah. I mentioned earlier that uh, re- later reviews of Killer's Kiss have often said, "Oh, Kubrick's a little bit arty here, a bit indulgent. He's sort of a bit over ambitious at times," you know. Um, Nobody says that about the killing, I no, don't think. No. And and yet he's he's still he's still employing a lot of those techniques. He's trying to sort of stand out from the pack. Mm, mm. And clearly, from the critic's point of view, he does it more successfully here because nobody notices. He he gets away with it more or he does it better here. Killer's Kiss is a great little film, but this is the the next step. This is yeah. Yeah. This is but two or three I, steps. I up. think a lot of that's to do with the narrative and to do with the construction of the plot because it's like yes. yeah. that's that's as clever as Kubrick's filming of it. Yes. Whereas Killer's Kiss, the script is not as clever as no. the way Stanley yeah. Kubrick films yeah. it. Yeah. So it's, it's less it's more noticeable. I, I think Killer's Kiss does sort of dance around in time and space a little bit, and with non-linear narrative. We mentioned the ballerina sequence, for instance. So we're we're getting a story told about a past event and then we're seeing another past event 
that's from a different time, but the story is being told in the time of the movie. That's being told to us right now, you know. So he's already sort of got this idea of messing around with the narrative and mm. the structure a little bit, but he goes full on, and he goes full on Rashomon here, you know. It's uh, which I, I'm sure again is a film that mm. he'd seen and loved, you know. And he, he doesn't do it for the whole film, but he does it in in little segments, little important segments. And I suppose like Tarantino did in uh, Jackie Brown, I suppose is the the best comparison. Yeah, he, he does it in important scenes. He'll show you the same scene from a different angle or a different point of view, a different time or a different perspective. And it works brilliantly. You as the audience always know where you are and what you're looking at. You never get confused. You always know exactly what the situation is, what we're seeing, where all the characters are, yeah. where people are I think that's a good point. It's, it's, it's brilliantly I mean, accurate. I think with Killer's Kiss, you could argue that you have three, at least three different settings which don't necessarily gel together immediately. You're starting off in a small apartment, then you're in the dance hall, um, and then you're in the boxing ring, for instance, yeah. with, the, with the killing. Uh, it's all centred around that racetrack, mm-hmm. but even the, the, you know, the individual apartments, Elisha Cook and his wife, for instance, you still recognise this as part of that, of that culture, that world. Mm-hmm. And most of it, obviously, is shot around the racetrack with different yeah. parts but they but they belong together yeah you get a, a real confidence really about using the spaces that the film is, is is being shot in yeah i i think this film is about elisha cook and mary Windsor. yes they are the most really intriguing characters ab- absolutely pivotal to yeah. this film and they're p- pivotal to the plot yeah. as yeah. well they are they are and I, I if i was to interpret the title i would say it's about the death of their relationship her out of control ambition and avarice and greed mm. and lust for money she's got really really poisonous nature as well mm. i think mm. and um and it's that that scuppers the whole plan yeah. she's not even not at the racetrack or involved in no. the robbery but she scuppers the entire thing yes. from her apartment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all about her. Yeah, that's right. The second most poisonous femme fatale in uh, cinema history, behind Anne Savage in Detour. Yeah, very, very yeah, likely. Yeah. yeah, there are a few contenders. Yeah. But there's even a scene where they're sitting down together at the, 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 the kitchen table and Mary Windsor's about a foot taller than Elijah Cook Jr., even when they're yeah. sitting down, you know. Yeah. So, so physically, there's, there's that sort of imbalance there and, and that symbolism about the relationship. We know who wears the trousers. Mm. Elijah and, Cook's so great in this film. He is. Oh, he's, he's great in our films, yes. but he has that look on his face where everything's a surprise. Oh, he's haunted it's by haunted everything. haunted by, yeah, oh, yeah, my yeah. God, I can't believe that he, just happened. yeah. Don't yeah. His, his eyes do that. Yeah. Kubrick knew that from yeah. seeing him in yeah. other films. That's yeah. why he's been Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Kubrick he enjoyed being in that. that film. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there is that physical contrast. And there's also Kubrick, not only did he cast these people because he liked them in previous noir, but he knew that his audience would have seen those same films. And they bring baggage from those mm, movies yeah. to their roles in this, I yeah. think. And those two characters more than anybody else. Yeah, and Sterling Hayden, not, but he's a very interesting person anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's like a character from a Joseph Conrad novel. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he's, he had this real cynicism about being a yeah, Hollywood yeah. actor, and he, he gave it up. I mean, with the, uh, with, with the, the Blu-ray and so on, you, there, there's one extra, um, which is him being interviewed on a, on a boat in, in Paris, on, in the Seine, and uh, being interviewed for French TV. And, and his stories... 
are, um, you know, he has absolute contempt for Hollywood. He stayed there as long as he could, then he got out. Yeah. You know, he'd given him the means in order to live his own life. And he, he was a bit of a nomad, really, rootless. Yeah, didn't he? Was, they made a documentary about his life, didn't they? The, yeah. The Pharaoh of Chaos. Right, yeah. Um, which was played at one festival years ago, and it's, it's basically him on screen. Well, he acted his whole life. It, yeah. He was acting himself the whole life. You can see that on the, in, in, the, in these features, for instance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting that having given up um, Hollywood, he was tempted back by Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. He, he, didn't he come back and do uh, Robert Altman as well, wasn't he? He was in the um, Long Goodbye. Yes. Oh, yeah. right. We've talked about um, the, the sort of noir heroes that Kubrick sort of wanted to use in, in this movie and cast in the, um, you know, cast them because they were noir stars. But he discovered a few new people as well. Joe Turkell's in this very briefly. He, he plays the other gangster who comes into the... Um, the apartment um, with um, the, um, the the lover of uh, Mary Windsor for the big shootout mm. scene, and Joe Turkell is one of only two actors who appeared in three Stanley Kubrick films. Oh, right. Kubrick okay. famously never worked with anyone more than once, apart from a tiny handful of actors. Joe Turkell did three films with him, right. including playing the bartender in in The Shining in his most important right. role. He was in this Paths of Glory and The Shining. But uh, Tim Carey is in this and, and Paths of Glory too. And then Tim Carey went on to become this outrageous sort of beatnik underground movie character in the early 60s who's got big cult following. But he was a bit of a Kubrick discovery. I think he makes a real impression here playing... Uh, he plays the, the, the assassin who's mm. hired to kill... Uh, the horse is it called Red Lightning yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a perfect part for him. Oh, he's great! If you're going to cast a guy yeah. who shoots a horse, you know, yeah. who better? He's he's a, he's like a proto beatnik. You yeah. know, this is 1956, and he's in there with all the finger clicking and calling everyone pops and saying everything's crazy. I mean, he's not in it for, for long, but he, no, he's not. But no, you remember not. him? Yeah, you do. He gets one brilliant scene that's actually really controversial. Perhaps not the thing that we, we, we like to focus on in doing these podcasts, but he uses a very strong racial epithet. He's setting up to, to shoot the horse at the racetrack. The race has started, the horses are coming round the bend. He's talked his way into the car park so he can set up his rifle and get a clear shot. And the car park attendant, he's tried to stop him getting in the car park initially, but they've struck up a bit of a friendship and he's slipped him 20 bucks and so on. And the attendants then become pretty friendly with him and keeps turning up and irritating him as he's trying to sort of set up for the uh, the shooting. Well, he poses as, be, uh, as being uh, disabled, doesn't he? Yes. The car, which yeah. is why he yeah. has to get in. Yes. So, yeah, uh, yeah he's, and, he's... And so they sort of connect that way because he's got the war wound, mm. hasn't he? And the attendant keeps going back to the open-top car that he's in and chatting mm. to him. Mm. And all he's trying to do is set up his rifle and his sights and everything. And the car park attendant comes back just at the point where the horses are coming round the, the final bend and right into his view and he's got to get rid of this guy so out comes the, the unspoken word I think it's an interesting moment particularly in, in, in this day and age in the 21st century uh, use, of, use of those kind of words and whether we've got onto the stage now where no matter who the character is, you can't use those and, and words. What, and what the even if, yeah, is, even yeah, if yeah. those characters are 
horrible racist people. I think it's fairly clear that this, this, the guy's going to shoot a horse. He's a despicable character. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's a racist either. I think he no. only says the word because he is desperate to get rid of the guy. Yeah. And it's, it's the mm. best way he can think yeah. of. Yeah. to offend I th- him I think that's the intention and I think that comes across I, I think yes. that's brilliant yeah. that's yeah. brilliant drama for me yeah. yes I, I agree in, in an almost indefensible way especially since the guy has been so friendly and, and you do sense that in another world Tim Carey may well reciprocate that friendship and they'd have gone for a beer after the race or something but in these particular circumstances where he's been hired for this job he's been hired to commit this ruthless assassination of, of this this horse and there's this guy getting in the way yeah yeah he does what he's got to do I, I agree. However, it's it is a problem created by its by itself. Yes, they yes, cast a black yes. actor in the in the role of, of the attendant. Yeah, and then worked away of getting rid of that character. Yeah, yeah. By this, whereas like nowadays, I don't think you would have a scene like that in the sense of like, like you, you could be argued that you've created the moment so you can solve it by having the yes. the, uh, the yes. racist term. Yeah. Well, let's let's say the that the attendant was was a white character. You know, how would that scene have played out? Oh yeah. What what would Tim Carey's character have said to get rid of him? Well, he wouldn't. He just shot him and then shot yeah, the horse yeah, and then yeah, drove off. Yeah, so yeah. That's, what I'm saying is that the, the, that and that would be a different kind of. And it scene. would be more conventional. I more think, conventional. Not as but the argument would be that you've created that scene and yeah, created the yeah. problem to include the racist term. Yeah. Rather than than create a different type of scene, because mm. ultimately it's not a, essential to the plot of the killing overall that that character is black and then that character's other character has to use the the racial slur. So I think that's why you wouldn't have it in a modern film. I think yeah, yeah. if you had agreed, if, agreed. if you had a modern a modern film had uh, racial slurs in it, the film's going to be about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's going to be about racial tensions. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be about racism. It's going to be about that, something like that to include those terms. Yeah. But it is in this film, and it's always going to be yeah. in this film. And it's clearly there for 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 plot reasons. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. yeah. brilliantly so, I think. I think yeah. it's, it's a great bit of drama, acceptable or not. I think it's acceptable looking back. Yeah. yeah. In the sense that I don't think it would happen now. No, and it wouldn't but, be acceptable. And it wouldn't be acceptable now. But yeah. looking yeah. back on it, it's like, well, yeah. it's used for a purpose in the yes. drama. I mean, I think it's interesting that we're, we're raising this as a question. Because if we look at uh, the history of Hollywood and its use of black actors, mm. it's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know we recognise it yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, you wonder and, why and it wasn't recognised then. They are they are buffoons. Yeah. Um, they're they're slow witted. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're lazy. You know they 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 have characteristics immediately. Yeah. So it's you know it's a shorthand. You immediately know what that character's going to be like just because they're black. And he isn't that. He isn't no, that. No, he's not he's exactly. This, this, this guy's this guy's a war hero. He's personable. Mm. He's mm. chatty. He's friendly. As yeah. I say, in other circumstances. Yeah. Tim Carey may well have even struck up a friendship with him and mm. they'd have been best mates, mm. you know. So, yeah, he's portrayed in a very, very positive light. And um, Yes, he's, he's a sympathetic uh, yeah, character, yeah, even yeah. though he's incidental. I, I, I think so. What, what, what about the mechanics of the heist? We've talked about the way it was portrayed and the Kubrick's use of time and space and flashback mm. and so mm. on and point of view. Yeah, and parallel the, just pieces the, of the, action. The, the whole mechanics of, of the, 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 the way in which the, the operation's Perform, I think is it's it's expertly edited. It is. It's, it's, it's orchestration, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. 
because you're, you know, you've got a, a number of, of, of narrative strands going along there simultaneously. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, the, always engaging, the audience always but, knows exactly yeah, where we are and that's who's right. doing what. Yes, yeah. so we're not asking questions. No. Carey's been introduced as, as you know, he and the, and the big wrestling guy are not members of the gang. Mm. Um, no. In fact, there's, there's some talk about that. There's a sort of Reservoir Dogs type meeting of the gang, isn't there? And they, they talk about, you know, who, who are the guys you're bringing in from outside, you know? And there's a bit of suspicion goes on there. Like, mm. You know, we all need to know each other. And the, the boss says, well, no, we've, we've got to, you, you can't know who these guys are. They're here to do a specific job. And mm. then talk about, well, do they get a cut of the money, you know? And there's all this sort of underlying tension yeah. and suspicion. But they do come in, they both do a professional job. And again, the, the job they do, the fight in the bar and then the, the shooting of the horse, are shown to us as part of, of this, this whole operation. And it's all seamless and it all works brilliantly. Yeah. And we, we, we think, oh, this, this is almost the perfect crime, you know. And the only thing that stops it being the perfect crime, as I've said, is a lady in an apartment miles away yeah, who, who yeah. most of the gang don't even know exists. I don't know how much to say about the ending of the film because we, it's always difficult... When well, I, yeah, I think you've got the question there. You need yeah. a climax. Yeah, yeah. Even though to a large extent to, uh, it's, played, uh, yeah, yeah. it's played itself out. Yeah. You know, the, 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 it's, it's, fallen to, it's fallen apart. You have this one character left uh, and you need a visual punch, don't you, yeah. at the end? Yeah. And do you get it? I think you do. I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I think you do. However, the intricacies of the heist makes me feel like he wouldn't do the things that he did at the end yeah. of the movie because he's a very clever man who mm. puts together this heist and then he gets basically caught out because he can't take on, on board yeah. baggage. Yeah. You know? It's mundane. He's, he's, yeah, it is. Uh, it's just a boring... So, yes. Suddenly, though, he's got no control over that. Yeah. He's, he's but wouldn't he have figured that out before? That's the point I'm making. Surely, surely that's not like a new regulation that you can't take suitcases on the, on the flight with you. Yeah. That's got to be... That's, that's literally... Everyone knows that. You've yeah. got yeah. your limits on your handbaggage. When you, see, when, you go to, when you go to Spain or whatever and you see all those people who've crammed those hand luggage bags to the absolute <laughs> limit because they don't want to pay yes. the, the, the cargo fees. I mean, where? it's almost comic, isn't it? You've got a criminal mastermind who, who can't deal with the, with the mundanities of everyday life. Exactly. I yeah. mean, stuffing notes into a, a battered old suitcase yeah. is almost comic, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 for me, it took me out. I didn't believe the character would do that. Yeah, I, no, I, neither, I can neither, see neither that yeah. because, because things have been so meticulous. Yeah. And we've got a parallel there because I think Kubrick has approached the movie in such a forensic and meticulous mm. and careful way, in the same way that the characters approach the, the heist. And, and then, but yeah, it's almost like Kubrick and, and the character on screen sort of make the same mistake at the end. Mm. I think I think basically Kubrick had the visual. Yeah, the that's NC. right. Yeah. That's what he yeah. wanted. And that's it, what he wanted. Yeah. He was like, well, they'll forgive me that. Yeah. 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 And I don't yeah. know whether we do. No, maybe, because maybe, it's so maybe not. I, I, th I think, I think it's, it caps the cynicism of, of this movie and it, it, it caps the, the, the fact that the whole plan, no matter how well orchestrated and planned it has been, it's doomed to fall apart, you know, and I think I think this this visualization of the plan falling apart 
is absolutely necessary and works really, really well as a sort of visual symbol of that. And again, could could be a depiction of the film's title. It's comic to think that this came out more or less at the same time as The Lady Killers. Yeah, yeah. Which has a similar kind of setup. Yeah. But it plays out in a completely different way. Obviously, it has different intentions. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's interesting to talk about like the visual. We talk quite a lot about the construction of the plot on this one, but also the visuals there. Mm-hmm. The Stanley Kubrick. And when people talk about the influences of Kubrick, the filmmakers they talk about are generally pulling from the visuals of, of Stanley Kubrick's yeah. career. It's like, I make, you know, I'm massively influenced by Kubrick, the way he composes his shots, etc., etc. Whereas, like, one of the most recent directors is, like, Christopher Nolan. And looking at the plot of this, you can see how Nolan is massively influenced yeah. by the construction of the plot, particularly the time, mm. playing around with time. He's done that multiple times yeah. in his movies, most recently, Tenet, but also yeah. with things like Dunkirk, mm. where he had the three timelines the, running the at different times, yeah. and then you have obviously Memento being yeah. told backwards. So he's obviously taken that style from, from the killing and that, that yeah. influence mm. there, which is, you don't see many other filmmakers... Mm. Uh, so influenced by one aspect of, of, of a director's yeah. career, and as we've said, Tarantino the same as well. Yeah. You, know, you can see that yeah. in Reservoir Dogs, more mm. so in Jackie Brown, I would yeah. say. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah uh, I mean, Tarantino, I think, took so much from the killing. You know, the the the, the, the relationship of, of the gang, and the fact that they're all sort of arguing with each other over who gets the biggest cut and, and what have you, and. And the whole sort of starkness of it as well, I think, and the, the atmosphere of the killing sort of pervades into Tarantino's early films. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just think the, 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 the killing is great and it, it, it works as a pair with, with Killer's Kiss, mm. but taken on its own, it's the first Stanley Kubrick movie. Mm. It's the first yeah. film by the Kubrick yeah. that we came to know and, and respect. And I, I think in that sense, you can maybe pair Killer's Kiss with Fear and Desire yeah. rather than pairing yeah. it with The Killing, you know. But I think to discuss these two films together is enlightening and important because yes. yeah. I think they, they fit together as a great double bill. Yeah. I, th- I think Killer's Kiss works perfectly as a as a supporting feature. As, an, as a sort of imperative mm-hmm. to... to yeah, and, and in yeah. that way, I think pairing it with The Killing is, is perfectly apt because yeah. it feels like the supporting feature for The Killing... Yeah, you know, it warms you up. It's the warm-up act, and then suddenly, uh, yeah. well, I think you know, I'm, 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 I'll go and see the, that double bill now yeah. in the cinema. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah, love yeah. to see and, it in the and cinema. As I, as I say, you could you could watch it all in two hours twenty minutes yeah. as well. So yeah. yeah, 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 less less than the length of The Shining, you know, or, or Full <laughs> yeah. Metal Jacket. Yeah. So uh, we forgot to mention when we were talking about Killer's Kiss that um, uh, listeners to the podcast might be interested in the uh, film. From the early 90s, uh, Stranger's Kiss, mm. uh, directed by Matthew Chapman. It's a fictional drama, but it's set around the shooting of Stanley Kubrick's film Killer's Kiss, and it sort of riffs on, on that and all the characters and what was going on behind the scenes and so on, mm. and creates a drama of its own, sort of mm. based on... Um, I think you're showing your age there, Dal. It's also not early '80s rather than early '90s. Really? So yeah, that's yeah, '83. Yeah. So it's way before, way, way right. before the whole uh, Tarantino boom yeah. of the '90s and things like that. But uh, way ahead of its time in that respect, Definitely. in the sort yeah. of like meta-referencing yeah. and things like that. So yeah, Strangers Kiss. If if you want to see a, a, a third film after seeing these two, 
uh, Stranger's Kiss would make another film that would be an ideal double bill with Killer's Kiss. So mm. there's the legacy of Killer's Kiss. It's, it's the film that would make a great double bill with about <laughs> 15 other movies. <laughs> yeah. Cool, very good. That's that's nailed two of Cubic's things. I mean, we don't have to go back to Cubic again for a while now, I think, uh, but I'm sure we will Is it do. Michael Bay next? Michael Bay next, <laughs> yes. The use of the never-ending camera movement. Uh, just stop, for goodness sake. Um, Again, you, yeah. you could fit these two Kubrick films into about half of a Michael Bay one, couldn't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And I know which I prefer to watch. Yeah. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very Thank much, uh, Daryl. Um, we will be back again in another couple of weeks' time, so we will see you there. I want to thank Quad and the BFI for supporting these podcasts. Take care, everyone.